even if the government said to everyone in Spain, put three weeks of food in your house, none of them would have been able to afford to do that. It was like a ball that just kept rolling faster and faster. Welcome to a special series of Beyond Soundbites podcast. I'm Jacob Mel. If you're a new listener, this podcast seeks to humanize the issues of forced displacement and mass migration through firsthand stories told by those who have experienced displacement themselves. This series, beginning in episode 13, is a bit different. We're hearing updates and insights from people around the globe who are doing frontline work with communities of displaced people during COVID-19. The goal is to introduce you to what some of the pressure points are in different regions so that we can unite together in prayer and when possible, take concrete, supportive action. In this episode, we're picking up the second half of a conversation with an aid worker and missionary named Bethany, who helps run a refugee center in the coastal city of Malaga in southern Spain. Last episode, we covered some background on the region and some of the challenges that migrant people and asylum seekers typically face there. Now we'll jump into what's happened since COVID-19 reached the country in early March. We'll start with the center's initial response. When Spain hit about 200 cases, we at the center started to talk about how do we keep our people safe? Is this going to become an issue? And if it does, how do we deal with it? They started by hanging signs in the center and trying to teach people alternative greetings besides handshakes and kisses and hugs, but soon took stronger measures. Normally, even when it's just food distribution, people are sitting around in our tea room, having tea and all the couches are filled and teacups get just like rinsed out with water by people and then given to somebody else. And so we didn't know a safe way to have our language classes and our tea room open without the potential of passing this virus. But at that point, like nobody had even started to talk about masks. Nobody was wearing gloves. We, we, we made some sanitizer out of 70% alcohol and 30% aloe. A lot of people refused it, didn't, didn't see the need for it. At that point, Italy was going into lockdown and they were starting to talk about closing the schools in Madrid. And so we made the call to give our people triple the amount of food as we, as we generally would. And we were planning to do that for two weeks in a row so that when the lockdown that we saw coming, though had not yet been announced, happened, they had enough food to be able to stay in their homes and be able to feed their families. So that week that we moved outside ended up being the last week we were open. Spain's national lockdown started on March 14th and began to partially loosen at the end of April. For six weeks, the whole country was only allowed to go outside to buy food or medicine or go to work for essential workers. The families from the center huddled in small apartments while the infection rate and the death toll climbed. It was like a ball that just kept rolling faster and faster. We it just didn't see it coming, even though they were saying Spain's on the trajectory that Italy was on. Spain's worse off than Italy was. We're seeing 2,500 cases to Italy's 15,000 or something like that at that point. But it just rapidly got worse in Spain, adding six, 7,000, 8,000 cases a day. Bethany and her team were restricted in their movements as well. They posted the number of the center and were able to respond to a few families with food deliveries, but mostly they did what they could from home. She tried to stay in touch with a few of the women in her English class. As time went on and people's data ran out, it became more challenging to talk to people who they don't have internet in their homes because it's expensive here. Our people live in very small apartments with more than one family. 
and they were locked down for six weeks in their home with their children who could not go outside. They often don't even have a balcony. It was awful. I can't even imagine the way my friends described it sounds terrible. Their kids are going crazy and then trying to figure out how to do distance learning with their schools, but many of them don't have internet or mobile data. And so it just was a situation that nobody was prepared for, but how could you have been? And even if, like, even if the government said to everyone in Spain, put three weeks of food in your house, none of them would have been able to afford to do that. Families divided by borders were also uniquely affected. A lot of our families have one family member who's not here, like the dad or the husband working in Morocco. Maybe he stayed. They all established a life here and then he went back because he couldn't get work here. But then that person in Morocco loses his job because of COVID and is living basically hand to mouth anyways. And so then there's no money to send to their family in Spain. And so people were just completely out of luck. At the end of April, when Bethany and I spoke, the government had lifted some restrictions and the center was able to resume a modified version of food distributions the week of April 20th. We sent a message to our people that with the times that they could come, the Spanish government right now is saying gloves and masks for everybody, so they needed to comply with that. And then we had taped some duct tape spots where people could wait. Generally, the center is a madhouse on a food distribution morning in a, in a very delightful way. People are so chatty and sitting around and having tea and talking with us and passing babies around and bringing baked goods from their homes. And so I had no way to imagine this super social and communal culture tamping all of that down and just coming for food and leaving without coming in to give kisses on the cheek or anything like that. But they did so well. We had to make it completely no contact. And so even our people who were elderly had to load their own bags, which is a significant amount of food when you're lifting, like our milk comes in packs of six liters, which is like 14 pounds of milk. And they had three of those and they had to load their own bags and people just were very kind and grateful and so glad to see us. And it was so good to see them. The partial reopening was a joy, but the week came with plenty of challenges. One morning, a local Spanish woman approached Bethany during the food distribution. This woman walks up and gets real close to me and just starts yelling that how I, how dare I serve Muslim refugees when there are Spanish people who are also hungry. That's very sad to hear and a, a glimpse into the reality of our people's lives. They are facing this whenever they leave their homes. But this lady was very loud and yelled at us until she just walked away in anger. Two other events that week were even heavier reminders of the compounding challenges of COVID-19 in poor and marginalized communities. And then on both Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, on either side of our storefront for our center, there are two very tall apartment buildings. And both mornings, one person jumped from either of those buildings to their death. 
And so it gave us a picture of the strain on people's mental health, the situation of just being completely confined to your home, likely losing your job, not being able to feed your families, drove people to suicide. And we witnessed it both mornings. If it was where we could see it on those two mornings, it was surely far more prevalent around the city than it normally is. And we have a lot of people in those buildings. I think I hadn't thought through the, the, the mental impact of this lockdown and this virus on people. I think this isn't over yet. I think people are still going to be struggling for a long time. On May 11th, Spain moved parts of the country into phase one of a five-phase relaxation policy. But Malaga, because of high infection rates, remained in phase zero. Interactions with the families from the center were still minimal. Bethany sent me a voice memo update on May 10th. So we don't really have any more contact than we had before. Our contact remains only on WhatsApp. People are not allowed to leave their houses except for one hour of exercise. And for that hour of exercise, you have to stay within a kilometer of your house. And you have to go at, for adults, we can go between 6 and 10 a.m. And then 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. So there's very little opportunity for any sort of in-person meeting with anybody. The center continues holding modified distributions all outdoors every third week. But this next week, we will see everybody again because they'll come for food distribution or we'll see one member from every family this week. So that will be good, but it will still be from a distance and no contact and um, yeah, not very, not very fun. Um, hopefully in three weeks we will be in phase one or maybe even phase two. And I don't know exactly what that will look like, how soon we'll be able to start up our language classes again, or if we should try to move them virtual. Those are all ideas that we're talking about. We anticipated being in phase one tomorrow, but we're not. So such is, such is the way things have been the last couple months, always changing and always unknown. You can trace faint lines of exhaustion, hope, and resolve, rising and falling in the contours and inflections of Bethany's voice as she describes the ministry at the center. I recognize it too in the tired words of my coworkers here in Chicago as our voices pass through Zoom meetings and phone calls. All of us carrying the weight of the unknown for ourselves and on behalf of the displaced people in our communities. Searching for hope in small things like the physical presence of people we care about, even if it comes in brief occurrences, still veiled by distance and masks. Bethany reminded me when I asked how people can pray for her and her team that our hope ultimately lies in the Lord in his goodness, even in the midst of chaos, and in his desire to be with us, how he beckons humanity toward himself in love. This is her own prayer for all the families at the center. We're praying for dreams for our people because they know that that God can reveal himself through dreams and so that he would show his face to them, that he would reach toward them, that he would call them by name so that they could respond. We're praying for his tangible spirit to fill their homes so that they can experience the living God. Her team is also praying for wisdom and agility as they reopen and navigate questions that many Christians who work with displaced people around the world are also sorting through. 
How do we continue to meet needs beyond felt needs? How do we continue to introduce our people to the grace of a hospitable God? How do we do that when we can't, we don't, we can't even anticipate what hosting them can look like? Who knows what that's going to look like, but it's not going to look like it did eight weeks ago. As we ended our discussion, Bethany shared one vision for a post-COVID future that we can all aspire to and long for in prayer. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently. She's been here a couple of years now and her kids are in Spanish school. And she said that perhaps when this this society reemerges, it will reemerge more on equal footing. And so she had a lot of hope for uh, an equal place in this society and this city that she's made her home. And so that that was a neat conversation to have and to be able to share that dream with her because I also want that for my my refugee and immigrant friends that this would be a place that they can live and thrive and find the Lord. If you'd like to support the center where Bethany works, please send an email to info at rhpna.com for more information. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for more updates and snapshots from around the world in coming weeks. Beyond Soundbites is created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. The interviewee's name was changed, and some identifying details were omitted at her request. Thanks to Hannah Bonifacius for editorial support on this episode. 